Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me. You're inspired. You're inerrant. You're infallible. You're all sufficient Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks to our dear brother Brady for leading us in worship to our Savior and our King and Diana as well back in fighting fit. I so missed being with you last week. I know that our brother Brent's message last Sunday was a blessing to the body. I know it blessed me tremendously. I shared with him that I could not think of a more needed message in these times. Do not worry. Do not be anxious. And here are the reasons why. We praise the Lord for the gifts that He's adding to HHBC through people like Brent Small and his family and the ways that he's growing his church. You know, there are two ways that a church can grow. You can grow numerically and we can grow in maturity. And we indeed pray for both of those. And we have both of those. But we look most to growing in maturity and in sanctification. We plant and we water, but God gives the increase. Growing in knowledge and love of the Lord and of His Word. For it is by that Word that we're raised up and that we are indeed brought low. We are, as J.C. Ryle said, quote, intended by Christ to prove all things by the Word of God. All churches, all ministers, all teaching, all preaching, all doctrines, all sermons, all writings, all opinions, all practices. These are the marching orders. Prove all by the Word of God. Measure all by the measure of the Bible. Compare all with the standard of the Bible. Weigh all in the balances of the Bible. Examine all by the light of the Bible. And test all by the crucible of the Bible. That which can abide the fire of the Bible, you are to receive, to hold it, to believe and obey. That which cannot abide the fire of the Bible, you are to reject, refuse, repudiate, and cast away. This is the flag which he nailed to the mast. May it never be lowered. Close quote. We stand as a people of the book. We stand on sola scriptura, on scripture alone. And we do that by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, and of course, to the glory of God alone. Last week, a dear brother, Paul Washer, he shared about an Afghan friend of his. He's a minister of the gospel in Afghanistan. And he told us that he got news yesterday that his friend is not coming out. He is choosing to stay in Afghanistan. And he said this quote, I am an old man. Afghanistan needs the gospel. And it is here, it is going to be here that I die preaching. Close quote. This man knows that he will be killed for the sake of the gospel. He knows that to stay is to forfeit his life. But he happily lays it down to bring this message to his countrymen. Many in America could not be bothered to get out of their pajamas to come to the house of the Lord. And yet as we speak, this man could be giving his life for the message that we so freely offer. This morning. Yet, beloved, our obedience in the realm and the sphere that God has placed us in is no less consequential than those that God calls to make the ultimate sacrifice. Obedience is obedience. And I think if we were honest, we would say that the small daily acts of obedience are sometimes harder than the large gestures. I would give my life for the gospel, yet do we give of ourselves to our neighbors? I would stand in front of a firing squad for my Lord. But do you stand for your Lord in the workplace? I'd lay it all down for Jesus. Will you lay down your pride? Perhaps with a spouse. 
We all have our areas and our spheres of obedience in our life and in our circumstance, whatever that place may be. And even if the lines of your life fall in pleasant places, that comes with its own set of obedience challenges. If you live in comfort and you know no need, which would probably define most listening today, that comes with very challenging exhortations for us in Scripture as well. We often talk about having correct lenses on while reading Scripture, don't we? And part of those lenses, they're almost like readers. You know, we can look straight ahead with the correct vision, but we also have those part of those lenses, just like those readers that are our eternity focals. We have to view a situation, a choice, a blessing, a sin, a relationship. Let's call them our e-focals. We have a, I'll have to trademark that, I think. Our eternity glasses. We live in light of eternity. And that colors our obedience, doesn't it? This pastor in Afghanistan, who's going to most certainly give his life to preach, 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 has seen his life through the lens of eternity. He will be empowered and equipped and strengthened for the task that the Lord has called him to. You too have been called to a task. You too have been called to obedience. It will likely not require your life, not yet anyway, but our faithfulness is no less required or needed. Be faithful where you are. Be faithful in the smallest of things. Be obedient, even if it inconveniences you or impinges your comfort. Jesus said very clearly, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So what is your Afghanistan? Where will you say with this pastor, here I will obey even to death? We are all called to this, if indeed we are children in the Beloved. So let us be marked by joyful obedience today, just today. Tomorrow's demands will be satisfied with fresh wine, new wine from the Lord. Let us be obedient today. Amen? Amen. Well, last week I smiled as I saw how the Lord wove Brent Small's message into our text. Recall how Brother Brent pointed us to what anxiety and worry how anxiety and how worry was in fact vanity. That the deception of self-worship is a hallmark of the vanity of worry. And by chance, we just completed our two-part series on the vain worship of the Pharisees. Right God, wrong heart. And the idolatry and the self-worship that we saw. And this was truly an apostate religion as we saw. And we read from the Jerusalem Talmud. They came right out and said, didn't they, that to, they were to value the teaching of the rabbis over Scripture. That the person who eats with clean hands and washes properly will have eternal life. They had departed and forgot the law that was delivered in thunder and smoke on Mount Sinai. And yet we recall that this system that yielded 30 chapters in the Mishnah alone on how to clean copper pots and other over-the-top requirements, these had been spawned from good intentions. The desire to build fences and protections around the law to make sure that no one broke God's law. To break it, to not even get close to the boundary of breaking it. That's a great thing. There's great wisdom in that. And we can learn much from that principle in our own life. That we don't skirt the edges of sin. We flee. We walk to the other side of the road. But these good intentions, these layers upon layers of protections, they eventually snuffed out the very law that they proclaimed to protect. The heart of the law had been smothered. The desire to put up guardrails to set apart a people for God's own pleasure had taken on a life of its own. When we separate ourselves from God's Word, you would say, brother, we, we would never do such a thing. 
Yet when you prioritize the words of men above God's word, apostasy is sure to follow. Even your own pastor. Don't hang on his words. Hang on Scripture. We should walk away every Sunday not saying what a great sermon or what a great preacher. We should walk away saying what a great God. The moment we deviate from that, we elevate something or someone above Scripture and we've begun that gentle sloping terrain to great error. And in this we saw the great tragedy that was the Pharisees. Serving the right God with the wrong heart. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. We were convicted at the close of our series on the vanity of our own hand-washing rituals. Not only the vanity, but the insanity to step in between a gift exchange wrapped up in a bow being given as a gift from the Father to the Son. And out we pop from the wrapping paper washing our hands and cleaning our pots. Legalism works and works righteousness blinds us to the beauty of Christ. And it robs glory from the one who will share His glory with no man. And it was a convicting word for us all as we evaluate the things that we do in our life that we, we secretly believe are currying favor with God, that are getting us in God's good side. In this tempting but foolish tendency, we deny the very doctrine of justification. You are made right in Christ alone. And in that, we hide ourselves. We remembered in our series that to have God the Father look on us without Christ, to catch a glimpse of me without Christ's covering, God can only give me His wrath. God's attributes and who He is, His holiness and His justice demands only His wrath apart from Christ. So we hide ourselves in Christ. Whatever is found in that day not covered by Christ will be turned to ash. It will be burned up with the dross. It will not last. Hebrews 12.29 tells us that our God is a consuming fire. All that is not of faith all that is not covered by His Son, Jesus Christ, will be consumed. So we flee from works righteousness. Flee from legalism. These will be instantly turned to ash on that day. Do we do good works? Yes and amen. But we flee from the notion that we are adding anything by them. We do good works out of love and out of appreciation for a God that would save a wretch like me. How can we return to... How can we not return others to, to love them, give them the grace and the forgiveness that we ourselves have not received. That's the heart of the matter. And surprise, it's a matter of the heart. And this morning, we do not stray far from that theme. From the very beginning of chapter 7, Jesus has been dealing with the external rituals that Israel is doing to try and make themselves clean before God. It's all external. It's all on the outside. It's all for show. Jesus spent the first 13 verses showing the hypocrisy and the vanity of this external worship. And now today is going to go even further. He's going to show the people where the filth actually lies. We thought the first verse from the first lesson here from Jesus was tough as our our hand washing rituals we all have in our lives were made bare. But here it is about to get more personal and even a bigger pill to swallow. So without further delay, let's look at our text. Mark seven fourteen through 19. 
And after he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. And when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples were asking him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you lacking understanding in this way as well? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it goes not into his heart, but into his stomach and goes into the sewer. Thus he declared all foods clean. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have as we have had to pray these last three Sundays, these are difficult texts. This is a difficult mirror for us to look into. Heavenly Father, if we have one prayer this morning, it is for soft hearts. It is for ground that has been tilled to receive the seed of Your Word. Holy Spirit, we ask that You abide with us and attend to Your Word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, YouGov polling in 2015 was conducted with a very interesting question in mind, trying to find out a very interesting piece of information. Do you think you're a good person? And do you think your fellow countrymen are good people? Are there more good people in the world than bad people in the world? And the record of respondents was quite interesting. Respondents from the UK, for example, only 12% thought their fellow countrymen were intrinsically bad. So inversely, this means that 88% of the people in the UK felt that their countrymen were good people. And on top of that, the majority of people also felt that they were morally better than their fellow countrymen. So if we're doing the math here, take the UK for example, thinking that 88% of their countrymen are good people, and the majority thought they were better than that 88%, to mean most people all put themselves in the top 10% of the moral standard bearers of their country. Interesting, isn't that? Most people think they are pretty awesome. Most people think they are good moral people. And most people believe they are in the top 10% of the good guys in their country. This poll should not surprise anyone who knows their Bible. All the way back to Proverbs, Proverbs 20, verse 6, Solomon writes that every man will declare his own goodness. Or put into modern terms, out of the nine people to my left and to my right, I'm the best among them. I'm a pretty good guy. No, I'm not perfect, but I'm certainly not bad as bad as so-and-so. The delusion came in Genesis 3. It was clear to the wisest man to ever live, Solomon, and would be born out today if you were to approach ten people and ask them if they did consider themselves to be a good person. Nine out of ten will say yes. Go ahead and try it. Every man will declare his own goodness. Well, Jesus is about to reign on that parade. Not only will our ritualistic hand-washing not save us, not only will our external religious acts not save us, but our biggest problem is not outside of us. It's inside. If any of you are Joel Osteen fans or want to walk out of church feeling super-duper, you might want to leave now. This text is going to say what this text is going to say. So give us soft hearts to receive it, Lord. The truth truth about what the Bible says about us And what we as a society think about ourselves are diametrically opposed. Society says my countrymen are basically good. 
And even better, I happen to be even better than most of my countrymen. Well, how nice. That's the world's wisdom. That's the message in a lot of churches this morning. Yet what does the Bible in our very hands this morning say about who we are, who we were, our condition upon creation? Well, Jeremiah pulls no punches when he described our hearts. How did the weeping prophet describe my heart? Your heart, the heart of your neighbor, of your coworker, the heart of your child. What is a biblical anthropology? Jeremiah 17:9 The heart of man is deceitful above all things and it is desperately wicked. Above all things it is deceptive. It is the epitome of deception. It's not just wicked, it's desperately wicked. It's bent on wickedness. Its desire is for wickedness. And Jesus is going to show us what proceeds out of that wicked heart. Paul says that we were born corrupt in Romans. David said he was born in iniquity. We are what theologians call depraved, what is known as total depravity. Total depravity is a topic worthy of its own 10-part series, but just a few tidbits for you to tuck away in your recesses as we dive deeper into this text this morning. Total depravity does not mean that every person is as bad as they can be. People sometimes misunderstand that, so they misapply or they reject this truth. Total depravity does not mean that every person is as bad as they can be. What it does mean is that every part of our being is fallen. Every component of our nature has been infected. And thus the seed of every possible sin resides in every human heart. The capacity for the least to the greatest sins we can imagine resides in every person's heart. There's no part of our being that's not fallen. Though none of us are as bad as we could be. See, when people hear the term total depravity, they have images of Hitler and people like that. The worst of the worst. That's not what that means. But this does not somehow take the edge off what Jeremiah and Jesus are saying about the wickedness of the heart and what comes out of it. It's incredibly humbling. Lest we raise our souls to another, lest we look down on anybody, the capacity for whatever that sin was in another person resides in me as well. You may have been tempted in different ways, but each person, James tells, tells us, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. In explaining total depravity, the analogy is often used of a sponge that's immersed in a bucket of vinegar. And that sponge, Dr. Jim Oreck writes, quote, would be soon saturated with vinegar. That is, the sponge would be so full of vinegar it couldn't hold it hold anymore. And if we remove the sponge, if we squeezed it all out, no matter how hard we squeeze, every bit of that sponge would still be damp with vinegar. And if we cut off any part of that sponge, it would still be damp and smell like vinegar. Similarly, while no human is completely saturated with sin, every component of human nature has been adversely affected by sin. If we separate and we examine the various components of human nature, every part is wet with sin and smells like sin. The total and total depravity refers to distribution, not saturation. I'll say that again. The total and total depravity refers to distribution, not saturation. Now, this is not a message on total depravity or what I would like to better call total inability. But what we, but we need to have this foundation laid if we're going to glean everything that Jesus is saying to the crowd. And my heart is fallen. My heart is wicked. It's not as wicked as it could be, but every part of my sponge is wet 
and smells of sin. And out of that flows all that Jesus says in our text today. Because I am fallen, because my heart suffers this condition, this is where I am to look. My biggest problem is not outside of me. It is inside of me. External corruption is not the reason I need a Savior. External forces and influences are not the cause for the condition I find myself in. I cannot think of a text that screams louder a favorite saying from this pulpit that the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And so we shall look there. Look into the mirror if we dare. Verse 14. Verse 14 as we begin. And after he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. Well, just prior to this, the interaction with Jesus had been a private affair with the Pharisees. His rebuke to them was not a public tongue lashing, though they often were. Yet even though we know that Jesus is coming to the end of his ministry in Galilee, the crowds, they're still pervasive. And we remember the entity of the crowd in Mark, don't we? What the crowd represents. It's a word not used in a favorable way, right? To be in the crowd is not a compliment in Mark. It meant that you were part of the people that were probably not going to get it. You're probably not going to understand. Unthinking masses, thronging hordes that were there for the show or for selfish gain. That's the impression we get. And yet how often, how often do we see Jesus being compassionate on the crowd? Often, very often. This time Mark says that Jesus called the crowd to him again. Well, this kind of gives us a picture that Jesus was talking with the Pharisees, right? The grand poobas are over here talking with, with, with Jesus and the Pharisees having their powwow over here. And so what's the crowd doing? They're hanging back, right? They're hanging back. And now that interaction is done. Jesus has eviscerated the Pharisees in the first part of chapter 7. And he looks around and he sees the crowd keeping this perimeter all looking at him. And Jesus knows they believe the same thing that he just rebuked the Pharisees for. And if Jesus does not teach them, who will teach them? This is compassion from Jesus on this crowd. And as we will see, it's teaching his disciples as well. So what's next in our text? He began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. Now we dare not skip over this. The language here is so very strong. The one who spoke creation into being, the one who sustains the universe, says, listen to me, all of you, and understand. What I'm about to say to you is incredibly important. What I'm about to say to you has eternal ramifications. This is not casual speech. It's like any parent in here who who needs to communicate with their child, right? They get out on their eye level and they say, hey, look at me. Listen, pay attention to what I'm about to tell you. Understand the words I'm about to say. No, eyes right here, right? Eyes right here. Okay? That's the language here. That's Jesus' intensity. This matters, so pay attention. So guess what? That goes for us here this morning as well. That goes for your pastor. Listen up. Verse 15. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. He's telling them that your entire system is on its head. Up is down and down is up. You're completely missing it. Your entire world is about the outside. 
Your entire apostate religion is about the external. You preen and you pine over it with such diligence. Does Jesus give them any wiggle room on this whatsoever? Does he capitulate somewhere? Does he give a head nod or a place even to the external? What are the first three words of verse 15? There is nothing. And nothing in the Greek means nothing. In three words that we could easily skip over, Jesus repudiates their entire system. There is nothing outside the man. What do you mean there's nothing outside? Our entire world is about what's outside, they're saying. What else is there but external and outside? This is an explosive statement by Jesus. This is a befuddling statement by Jesus. Those of you who have listened to our series up to this point have seen some of the -the over-the-top rules and regulations that these people live by. Now, mostly up to this point, we've focused on Sabbath rituals and cleaning, cleansing rituals. But now, through though it's all-encompassing of the external, Jesus puts his finger on some of the dietary rituals as well. To this day, Jewish dietary rituals, they're sacrosanct. And that's nothing compared to what it was. If you have 30 chapters of the Mishnah that tell you how to clean a copper pot, what do you think about dietary rules? And here comes Jesus saying it's all wrong. Is Jesus abolishing the law? Absolutely not. Jesus came to fulfill the law perfectly. But what they're doing has nothing to do with the Old Testament law. They're missing the heart of the matter completely. And if they don't figure this out, eternity is at stake for them. It's all at stake for us as well. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. And we see this word defile used here. Five times it's used in our text. It means to make unclean or to pollute If you're polluted, if you're unclean, if you're defiled, it has nothing to do with your external environment and everything to do with your heart. And the Old Testament is clear on these things. When Samuel was looking for who would be king of Israel, Samuel wanted to look at the external. He saw the big, tall sons of Jesse and he said, surely that's the chosen one. Ah, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesus is bringing this crowd back to the Old Testament. He's not abolishing anything. He's not abolishing any law. This is no new law. This is an old law. The Lord looks at the heart. Yes, there were external rituals prescribed in the Mosaic law, weren't they? Weren't there? But what's the point of them? The external cleansing was done to remind them of their need for what? Internal cleansing. Nearly the entire book of Hebrews is about this very thing. Very quickly, some of the more observant will notice that we skipped verse 16 in our opening. And if you'll look in your Bibles, most of you will see brackets or an asterisk around this verse. Well, the reason for this is that this verse does not appear in the earliest manuscripts. It was likely a later addition. Now, Jesus does often say the words that you see in verse 16, but we like to stick as closely to the text as possible. So this morning we'll be moving past verse 16 for that reason, but its inclusion or its exclusion, it doesn't really change the meaning or the emphasis in case you are concerned about that. 
But what Jesus has said to the crowd is explosive. It's confusing. It's like nothing any rabbi has ever said. And guess who's been listening this entire time? And is nearly as confused as the crowd, our favorite, the disciples. Verse 17. Verse 17. And when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples were asking him about the parable. Good old disciples. Yes. Now let's remember that as much as they have learned up to this point, the scales that have fallen from their eyes, particularly remember as Jesus walked out on the water to them, they're confessing Jesus as the Son of God, yet they are still a product of their culture. They were raised in the very same system with the very same crowd that was born and bred on external religiosity that was looking for a military messiah. These were their neighbors as well. Yet there's nothing new under the sun. Our entire culture today is born and bred on that your problems, your sin, is not the, the product of your heart, that it is the product of your environment. It's the same thing today. We focus on the external. You're actually a great person. You just had some hard knocks growing up. Or even legitimate and heartbreaking struggles. I'm this way because I was abused. When I was younger, I struggle with this sin because of X, Y, Z in my environment, in my life or in my childhood. I'm a victim of my environment and my surroundings. And every psychologist in America will line up to affirm that our entire legal system is set up to hold people less accountable because of external forces in their life. A murderer gets 10 years instead of 20 because he was abused by his father. All of this saying that you were not the problem. The problem was outside of you. Jesus repudiates this entire worldview. Now that does not minimize suffering or hardships or abuse. Not in the least. In fact, it's just the opposite. Look at this inversely. Those things happening to you, that environment, those challenges, that abuse, whatever it happens to be, it does not defile you. It's a rebuke to the crowd. But there's great liberation in that as well. I'm not a prisoner to that. That is not what defines me. That is not what defiles me. The problem is in me. And that's good news. Because you can't change anyone else. And you may not be able to change your environment or your circumstances. You can't change the past. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be given a new heart. A heart of flesh. The bad news is, you can't blame your externals. The good news is, your externals cannot defile you. And they cannot make you unclean or polluted. Grab hold of this and you will be free. There are two sides of this coin. Back to our text. And entered the house. His disciples were asking him about the parable. Well, this house was likely Peter's home, right? In Capernaum, where Jesus lived for most of his ministry time there. His disciples were asking him about the parable. Now, the English doesn't give us the full sense of the scene here. The verb asking here is in what's called the inceptive imperfect tense. Meaning literally, they went to asking. Meaning that they were on Jesus immediately upon walking in the door, like white on rice. Jesus, what was that? What did you mean? You're turning our world upside down here. They walked in the front door and the disciples were on it. Why does this matter? Because this tells us this rattled them. This rattled them. And how sad that this rattled them. This shouldn't be new news to them. The Judaism of his day 
had apostatized so badly at this point that pointing to the heart was like speaking a foreign language. And how does Jesus respond? Verses 18 and 19, I'll look at them as one. And he said to them, are you lacking understanding in this way as well? Stop there. Well, we can pick it up in the English here a little bit, but this is a rebuke. It's a mild rebuke, but nonetheless. Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? This is so radical for them. Jesus repeats the lesson he gave to the crowd. And he's disappointed. They're not getting this. Why? Well, verse 19 starts to give us more light than Jesus gave to the crowd. Here's the privilege of the disciples. They're going to get deeper teaching. They're going to get explanation. Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and goes to the sewer. Seeing heart and stomach together here, it almost throws us a little bit, doesn't it? As, as we know the stomach is physical, we almost want to see the heart is physical as well when we read this together. Of course, we know this is not what Jesus is saying. The heart is the seat of the will of a person. Your desires, the center of spiritual activity, your emotional, intellectual, moral activity. It's your attitudes, your affections, your priorities. That's your heart. And Jesus is saying that whatever is external, in this case food, never touches what matters. Jesus is almost speaking on two levels here, anatomically, to explain spiritually. When I swallow something, does it touch my heart on the way down? Only if it's Miss Diana's or Miss Tina's cooking. No, it doesn't touch the heart. Whatever it was externally never touches what matters. It goes into the stomach and into the sewer. The point is that something physical or external, the food you're eating, the cleanliness of your hands or of your pots, those are physical things. They are not going to defile you. They cannot. They're physical. And your defilement is spiritual. God looks at the heart going out, not the stomach going in, or any external act. Notice very quickly the end of verse 19. Thus he declared all foods clean. Now notice this is the parenthetical statement here, isn't it? This was not, this was not something that Jesus said. We know that he had, that we had clean and unclean food, right? Right? We have clean and unclean food in, in the Bible. Why? Why this external act? I thought we were all about the heart here this morning, Pastor. God is. And the dietary laws were all about the heart. The purpose of having clean and unclean food was to instill an awareness of God's holiness being clean and the reality of sin as a barrier to fellowship with God. Unclean. The clean cannot touch the unclean. God is clean. I am unclean. I need to be saved. I need Messiah. It's all about the heart. Do we see that? It's quite beautiful when we see it as God intended it and not as Israel had made it to be. But this little parenthesis here, where is this coming from? Jesus did not say it, but who else had quite an encounter with dietary matters in the book of Acts? Who had a vision on top of a house in Joppa of all the creatures coming down in a sheet? Who was told, do not call unclean what I have called clean? Peter. And whose sermons were recorded for the writing of Mark's Gospel? Peter. And just as a wonderful side note, now that we understand the reasoning for clean and unclean food, what it represented, clean God, unclean me. And now Jesus is saying to Peter, 
all is clean. Jesus is saying that the veil has been torn. That sinful, unclean man can now reside with a clean, pure, holy God. Isn't that amazing? That's the glory of the Gospel. We all know, all the way back to the beginning of our last series, that we all have our hand-washing rituals. We all have our external religiosities that our culture has imputed to us or that we've made our own and we scrub and we scrub and we wash and we wash. But the defilement comes from the heart. Our greatest problem is not outside of us. It's not our boss, our spouse, our circumstance, our checking balance. It's in our hearts. And while we were made a new creation when we were born again with new desires and new affections, new loves, until glorification, that old man needs to be crucified daily. The old heart. But saints, imagine a relationship, a marriage, a world where everybody knew that their biggest problem was not outside of them, but inside of them. How much quicker would we be to reconcile? How much quicker would we forgive? How much humbler would we be? How much slower to anger would we be? Peace fills a home and a church and a state and a nation when we know where the defilement comes from. All the way back to Mount Sinai and the law. It was all about the heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, You have pricked our heart. Lord, You have held up the mirror to us that we might look into it or that we might look at our own hearts. Lord, we ask that we would be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's work in our life in this area. We ask, Lord, that we would not grieve the Holy Spirit by setting it aside, but that we would allow our hearts to be watered, that we would allow our souls to flourish with this truth. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would keep us this week as we go, that these words would bubble up within us at just the right time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.